Well, we are finally there. Lesson 36 and the last verses of Hebrews chapter 13. If you look at the epistles in the New Testament, you will discover that generally at the front of an epistle, there will be introductory information. And also at the end of an epistle, there will be uh, information supplied as well. And so you have a fair bit of information to start the epistle with in terms of who the author is and who the recipients are and perhaps some clues about uh, what the circumstances are. When you look at a book like First Thessalonians, there are literally three chapters of, of introductory information in the sense of telling us about this body of believers, about their circumstances and their lives, and so we really have a, a great deal of information. Even in a book that is as doctrinally oriented as Romans, there is a, a fair bit of introductory information in chapter 1, verses 1 through 16, and then there are these greetings and so on that take place in, in the last chapter of Romans. And, and it's to me, in Hebrews, it's like the author is so revved up, if I may speak in automotive terms, and he's about 5,000 RPMs, and he just drops the clutch <laughs> and starts laying rubber. At verse 1, he doesn't tell us who he is. He doesn't tell us who he's writing to, pretty much. And, and uh, he just starts out about Jesus, which is not a bad way to start. And, and the, uh, the ending of the epistle... In, in, in the verses that we're dealing with today, this is the inside information. This is the stuff that gives us as much uh, personal data as, as we're going to get in the book of Hebrews. And uh, as I say in your notes, uh, don't, don't get all worked up about it because you're going to find out that the, the readers understood not only who the author was, and, and you know that's been a subject of great debate, and they they knew about the circumstances, but we read this, and in, to some degree, our eyes just kind of roll because we don't really know. Uh, this doesn't tell us the kind of things that we would like to know in our curiosity. Now, I believe it tells us what we need to know in terms of our spiritual lives, but we're going to be a little disappointed if we want uh, inside information. These are critical words that are given to us, and as I say, there is much more that could be said. I smiled as I as I listened to John Piper in his message, which was supposed to be uh, Hebrews 13, verses uh, 17 through 19. He got halfway through verse 17 and quit and came back to finish the verse the next week and pushed the end of the series out in order to do that. So basically, just verses 17 through 19, and if you want to really listen carefully, he doesn't even really get to 18 and 19. Two messages on verse 17. Dr. Johnson uh, has his own uh, priorities, and so he spends an entire message on verses 20 and 21. All of that is to say, if you think there isn't much here, then you're probably wrong. There's a great deal of information there that is that is helpful to us. I'm going to uh, I'm going to revise my message in the sense of the order, and I'm I'm going to take and hold the uh, the benediction in verses 20 and 21. I'm going to hold those until the end, 
and I'll deal with the personal information before that just because I, I love to end on the note. And he has an amen there, by the way. And so uh, we'll, we'll, we'll stop at the first amen and, and we'll deal with the second amen a little earlier than that. So let's talk about, first of all, uh, this section in verses 17 through 19 and also include uh, verse 24 and in reality verse 7 as well. Follow your leaders and pray for us. Leaders are not mentioned in the, uh, in the epistle until chapter 13. Isn't that interesting? No reference to leaders like Philippians 1 where it's written to the elders and the deacons and whatever. Not, not there. Uh, leaders only come at, at chapter 13 and there three times we, we find the, uh, the, the leaders mentioned. In verse 7, we are to remember our leaders, seemingly those who have gone before and passed on. Remember those leaders and reflect upon the outcome of their life and also seek to imitate their faith. And then in our text, uh, obey the, uh, our leaders and submit to them in verse 17. Greet them in verse 24. And uh, I've got this section called Pray for the Author. And I want to I come back to that. It's interesting to me that he does not say, obey and submit to your leaders. And I would say, given that, I would be saying, and pray for them a bunch. I mean, that would be a good thing to do if you've got to obey them and submit. He doesn't say that. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Pray for us, which I, I want to come back to in a little bit. So let's look at follow your leaders, uh, obey and submit, verse 17. By the way, the, the word obey is, is, a, uh, is a kind of a fascinating word because it, it, isn't, it isn't a really hard or harsh word. It's almost like... Be open to be persuaded. Uh, be inclined to listen uh, to your leaders. And then submit is used only once uh, in the New Testament. It's used here, probably a harder core word uh, than the uh, word obey. But notice the word leaders is plural. He is not talking about a church which has one kingpin, one uh, a, a giant that people flock to hear and, and seek to follow, one CEO type of leader. He's talking to a church that has a multiplicity of leaders, which we understand to be the New Testament standard and what we try to practice here. Notice also that the word leaders is not the word elders, not the word bishops, not even the word deacons. And, and I've puzzled over that a little bit, and, and it's I don't know the answer for that. It may well be that there are people who have a leadership role who may not have a formal office, uh, and maybe that's the sense. There may be people who are who are leading, uh, but not necessarily in an official capacity, although I think the emphasis probably falls there. It's possible that in this church, there may be those who are used to other terms for leaders, and, and that may be the author's reason. I'm not sure this is right, but I, it was one uh, explanation that at least came to my mind that may make some sense. These are Jewish Christians, and they are used to being ruled by elders. Uh, and, and so it may be 
that he purposely avoided that word because it's the elders of the people in the Gospels who are most aggressive in their opposition to the Gospel and to our Lord Jesus Christ. And it may well be those those elders who are putting pressure on, so to speak, to come back to the fold. So he may have avoided the word just because of other connotations outside of that. The bottom line is, I don't know why he doesn't name them as elders, but he does not. Why follow? For their joy. Isn't that interesting? For the joy of the leaders. And then he goes on to say, which is your good. <laughs> you know, it's not any fun to follow a grumpy leader. Have you found that out? It is not any great delight to follow a grumpy leader. I was thinking about Moses when he got so mad and he struck the rock. You know, and I can imagine these Israelites saying, oh, Moses has got a bad day. Well, when a leader is unhappy, then it's bad for everybody. Now, I'm not sure that I like the, the translation that talks about that they will do this without complaint. I, I, don't, I don't really think that that's what uh, elders do when people are disobedient. I think the word is groaning, uh, and it is often done in other translations. I think that elders do groan. It's, for instance, you remember Romans chapter 8 when it talks about all creation is suffering and groaning, waiting for the the final day and the redemption of the sons of God. There is a sense in which it is painful to be a leader and watch people going down the wrong path. And, and there is a kind of angst. And, and I, I don't think that anybody who has not been an elder can really understand how much of that there is. And when I was listening to Piper this week, he, he, was, he was talking about looking out in a congregation, and he said, we are, we are all broken, in effect, messy people whose lives have so much trouble and whatever, and, and you're, you're constantly seeing people go off course and then, you know, be dealt with and whatever. And there, there's just a lot of, uh, I guess what I would say is, some people would say, I, I don't want to read the newspaper because there's so much bad news. Well, don't be an elder either. Uh, because it's, it's just, there is just bad news built into uh, that. But he says, it is for your good to have joyful leadership. And he says, they will give account to God. Just remember that when you are following the lead of your leaders, they're going to give an account. God's going to have us stand before him and he's going to ask us why we did certain things and why we didn't do certain things. And that is a very awesome thing to think about and to to contemplate. He says, that the goal of their leadership is your good. They keep watch over your souls. That word, to keep watch, is a word that, that often has the sense of losing sleep. Um, and and I, I thought, I pondered this, this this morning, and I decided not to do it. I almost, I almost was ready to ask elders, amongst us who have lost sleep over this flock to stand, but they don't need to because every one of them would do it. Every one of them would do it. I have heard my fellow elders say 
I did not sleep last night because of what took place, what happened. So when you think about following your leaders, understand they pay a big price. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, lean on John Piper for a minute because uh, he, uh, as I said, he wanted to do one sermon and did two and, and ended up two sermons uh, on one verse out of three, which is not too bad. I could have done the same probably, as, so I, I, I have uh, sympathy for him. But he sums it up in, in these three words. Watchfulness, they keep watch. What, in other words, what is the standard for leaders? What lessons should elders learn and leaders learn? Watchfulness. We ought to be keeping watch for the souls of men and women and children in our congregation. Secondly, we ought to be joyful. If we are not joyful, our body suffers. And I really, now, you would know, if I had said to you, who would you think of, of all the preachers today, who would jump on this like a duck on a June bug? You would say, John Piper. And you'd be right, because joy is one of the things that's just a huge element in, in his mindset, and rightly so. But here's what he said, and I, I thought it really resonated. He said, suppose that you have leaders who proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, they talk about what God wants for men and for people in their body, and they are joyless people. What does it say about the gospel that they proclaim? If they're grumpy, grousy, uh, unhappy people, then what it says is, I'm not happy with this message. I'm not happy with this job. I'm not really happy with God. Joy he says, ought to be something for which not only the congregation seeks to bring, but which we as elders seek to maintain a joyfulness, but also seriousness. We will give an account. So we need to be serious, as Piper says, about being joyful, because it is a reflection on the message and on our master. Now, I'm going to say one more thing about Piper uh, because I thought this was excellent. When he plays out what obey and submit looks like, he says, one, it is a bent toward trusting our leaders. It's not unqualified trust. There are texts in the Bible which talk about leaders who go south. But it is a, a predisposition, if you would, uh, toward trusting leaders, giving them, as it were, the benefit of the doubt. Secondly, a disposition to be supportive in spirit and in action of leaders' goals and directions. Thirdly, a desire to imitate their faith. And finally, to, to happily comply with their instructions. Those are good words, and I would encourage you to uh, listen to, uh, to Piper in those two messages in particular. I think they're excellent. Now, follow your leaders and pray for us. Somehow that just that, that just stuck in my mind because I expect to read, follow your leaders and pray for them. Why does he say pray for us? By the way, I am not suggesting you shouldn't pray for your leaders. <laughs> there are lots of texts that tell us that. I'm just curious as to why this writer changes from them to us. Uh, Let's talk about this. Pray. 
Only here in uh, chapter 13, verse 18, and in chapter 5, verse 17. So prayer is not really heavily emphasized until this point in the book of Hebrews. And as I pointed out, not pray for them, but pray for us. And some would say that that is kind of a... uh, um, a way in which a writer, when he says us, he really means me. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think, number one, he's going to talk about Timothy and whatever. And when you look at the apostles, they were not lone rangers. Just as leaders is used in the plural, when you look at the New Testament and you see those people going out with the gospel, they go together. And so my guess is that the writer is is petitioning prayer, not only for himself, but for those who are engaged uh, with him. Here's my thought. Why pray for us? This, it, when I look at this and I see this writer urging his readers to submit to their leaders, here's, here's the way I look at this, and I, I, may, I may be missing it a little bit, but... Here's a guy who's going to say to them, I have written this to you briefly. Now, Richardson isn't here so I can talk about him, but he uh, did his dissertation, his Ph.D. dissertation on the book of Hebrews. And, uh, And in some ways, you would say, you might be able to say, it's brief. But the one thing you would know if you knew Richardson is he could go a whole lot deeper and he could go a whole lot longer, but uh, they won't let him. Now, the story I heard, David, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the story I heard about Dr. Pentecost is when he came in to turn in his dissertation for his doctorate, he wheeled it in on a hand truck. And after that, the seminary said, we're going to put a limit on the number of pages that you can write. It seems to me that this author... When you look at the depth at which he writes, would you not agree with me? This guy is no slouch in terms of his grasp of Scripture. So I see this guy as a great scholar. Whether it's Paul or somebody else, it doesn't really matter. This guy is a profound scholar. He writes this epistle and says, this is brief. If you really want the long version and you have the time, I could do it. And he is writing to elders uh, in a particular church, but he's really writing to, ch- to elders in any church. And these people cannot operate, or most of them will not, do not operate on the same intellectual level. This guy is like the president of a seminary, and he's going to be writing to blue-collar elders in, in various places. And what does he say? He expresses incredible confidence in their leadership. Now, that's very rare. First Corinthians... Remember, you see Paul, and you've already got the church divided off, and there are, there are all kinds of people who want to give you the impression they know a whole lot more than everybody else. And what does that imply? Follow me. Here is this writer who we know knows a lot. And what does he say? Follow these men. They are capable, qualified men. They, they are worthy of your trust. Follow them. Not follow me. And then he says, pray for me. Now, what does that suggest to you? It suggests to me that the author understands this is not something he can do on his own. 
you and I know our friend Orv, and I'll stop with that part, but you and I know that we constantly get requests for prayer, and we constantly get return feedback that what happens is the result of prayer. What is that saying to us? It's saying to us that God uses clay pots. God uses weak vessels to bring glory to himself. And when somebody like our author says, trust these men, they may not operate on the same level, they may not have their PhD in theology, but these are good men. Trust them, follow them, honor them, imitate them. Pray for me, I really need help. That says a lot to me about this man, whoever he may be. Pray, he says, because we have a clear conscience. Verse 18, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to conduct ourselves rightly in every respect. That's kind of an interesting statement, isn't it? He's praying and asking because he acknowledges a weakness, but he also is saying we have confidence regarding our conscience And that has to do with the way in which we walk before God. Here's my suggestion to you. In in, uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, Paul talks this way. As you also join in helping us by prayer, so that many people may give thanks to God uh, on our behalf for the gracious gift given to us, through the help of many. For our reason for confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that with pure motives and sincerity, which are from God, not by human wisdom, but the grace of God, we conduct ourselves in the world and are all the more toward you. I would say this, having a good conscience gives you confidence to be prayed for. Now, suppose that you had a leader uh, like one of those described in Second Peter or Jude. False teacher, living a life of debauchery, totally absorbed in self-indulgence, uh, hypocrisy, all of that. How confident should that person be when he says to other people, pray that God would bless me? <laughs> i got to tell you, folks, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to the bank on the basis of what those prayers are going to do. Why would God bless a hypocritical scoundrel? So there is a sense in which when somebody is living rightly before God, as far as their conscience is concerned, they are not willfully violating what they know to be true, but they are living out the gospel, then when they ask someone else to pray for them, they have confidence that God will hear their prayers. It isn't just the prayer, uh, uh, the, 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 the piety of that person. It's the piety of the one for whom they're praying that I think is a factor. Secondly, when you go to Second uh, Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, I am thankful to God, whom I have served with a clear conscience, as my ancestors did, when I remember you in my prayers. A good conscience gives us confidence to be prayed for. That was my first point. A good conscience gives us confidence to pray for others. 
So that when Paul is writing here, he's saying, I think, I believe that I'm standing before God with a good conscience, not living in hypocrisy or, or sin, and therefore I pray confidently that God would listen to my prayers. James says, the prayer of, of a righteous man accomplishes much. So when one is living a godly life, their prayers ought to be more, for, more powerful before God. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, Peter talks about a husband living with his wife in an understanding way so their prayers may not be hindered. I'm just suggesting, it's farther out on the limb, but I'm suggesting that when a man lives with his wife with a good conscience, their prayers will go farther. There is something here about the relationship between one's conscience and prayer that I think we ought to give some further thought to. And Hebrews chapter 9, uh, you've got twice, verse 9 and verse 14, talking about how the old covenant could not purify one's conscience, but Christ's blood does. So in light of what we're reading in the book of Hebrews, if anybody should have a clear conscience, it's one who has a grasp of the work of Christ in the new covenant and its relationship to them. Pray for what? Well, I would suggest godly conduct. That's what he's saying. We desire to have a good conscience. So pray that we would live lives that would fulfill that. And secondly, pray that I will be, we will be restored uh, to the readers. That seems to say to me that the writer is in confinement. It looks to me like this may be a prison epistle, which wouldn't that be interesting? It would, would it not be forceful, as you see in other places, but wouldn't it be more forceful to be encouraged to persevere under distress and to encourage people with that in writing from your prison cell? That may be the case in this, in this instance. Personal words, verses 22 through 25. As I say, the original readers understood much more than we. They knew who the writer was. They understood the circumstances. And as we read this, we end up scratching our heads. But here's what we know about the author. We know that his target audience is believers. Do we not? He is writing to believers. Whether they live in one place or another, we may set aside. He is writing to believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. We certainly have a sense of his ability to teach in depth. If he can write this epistle and say, I just scratched something out in brief, and, and, and our eyeballs are rolling, I mean scholarly our eyeballs are rolling at what this guy is saying and the way in which he handles the scripture, if he's doing this in brief, this is, this is a guy who really knows what he is doing. He is skillful uh, in his in his teaching and doctrine. Thirdly, we know that he is associated with Timothy. Now, those who are uh, advocates of Pauline authorship are probably going to be waving flags out there right now and saying, yeah, why didn't you listen to me before? You have to say, if this guy isn't Paul, and I'm not going to put my money on it right now, but if this guy is not Paul, he is certainly well entrenched in Pauline circles. He is talking like Paul at this point. He is closely associated with Timothy. 
uh, and he's talking about coming together with him. Whoever this guy is, he, he, has a, uh, he certainly has a relationship with that circle. By the way, Timothy, he says, has now been released. So he's talking as though Timothy and he, if he is, is also released in answer to their prayers, then they will come together to visit this uh, church. But his confinement, his confinement is clearly, it seems to me, indicated when he says in verse 19, ask, uh, I, I ask that you pray that I may be restored to you very soon. That sounds to me like a fellow who is uh, in behind bars. And finally, he says, those who are from Italy send you greetings. Scholars really, they, they don't know what to do with this. You, you can read this in two ways. One, if Paul is not in Rome, if he's not in Italy, then what he could be saying is, there are a whole lot of your fellow Italians who are here, who are saying, as I write back to you, say howdy to the folks back home. It would be like being in Washington State and having a, a group of Texans there, and they know I'm going to write home, and they say, you know, say howdy to everybody back. So it could be that there are Italians who are located somewhere other than Rome, other than Italy, and he is identifying with that, and therefore he would be writing to Rome in that case. The other side is, he may be saying, I, in effect, I am writing from Rome, and my Italian brothers and sisters send their greetings. So it really isn't definitive, and, and uh, it's just one more of those question marks. The author's intentions, I think this is critical. It's to encourage, I, I really separate all of these, encourage believers to persevere. Uh, it, 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 that is, to me, that is really critical. This, at the conclusion of his epistle, if our author is making it clear that his, he's writing to believers, his goal is to encourage them so that they will persevere, then that really helps me when it comes to understanding problem texts. In other words, I don't get the feel that he's an evangelist who's trying to scare the fire out of unbelievers. Uh, but rather, he is an exhorter trying to encourage believers. So, anyway, and he's not trying to cause believers to doubt their salvation. Where's Tom Wright? He'd be amening this fear here. His in intentions also include his expectation, and that is... These people to whom he writes, because he says, greet your leaders, he is writing this to, to, to the, uh, I hate this word, to the laymen and women of the church. He's not writing to the leaders, he's writing to the congregation. And he is writing about heavy-duty stuff. Now, he told us back in chapter 5, I'd like to go deeper into this Melchizedek thing, and, and part of the problem is that you just give me that glassy stare and I realize you haven't been working as hard as you ought to to understand and, and, and know the scriptures. But I'm going to plow on anyway and I'm going to give you this stuff. His expectation is that the average person in that congregation would understand what he said. Not just their leaders. And not just the high-level folks, but they would understand. He expects that to be the case. And I believe that means that's doable. And that's the goal that they should have. Okay, the benediction, quickly. 
it is, in general, it is a summary of the things that uh, he has been saying that pertain to blood and to the covenant, and in particular, the new covenant, which is the eternal covenant. And it's eternal because it's a sacrifice once for all. It's a sacrifice made by oath. And it's a sacrifice that has been made by him who has been raised from the dead, who forever lives at the right hand of the Father. So it's about that that he is, uh, that he is speaking. The thing I want to focus on is the new theme, and that is the resurrection. Until now, the theme of the resurrection has not really been there on the surface. Now, it may be there under the surface, but in terms of him speaking of it directly, no. What he has done is he's talked about the incarnation of our Lord and him taking on human flesh. He's talked about the death of our Lord. And then he's talked about the the uh, glorification of the Son and his being seated at the right hand of the Father. But he's not made a huge point of the resurrection yet, other than what he's been talking about in chapter 11 when he's saying, by inference, all of these Old Testament saints believed the reward was coming after their death. That implies resurrection. Here, he makes it very, very clear. Now may the God of peace, who by the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus Christ, equip you with every good thing to do his will. The resurrection now is prominent. Now, I don't have time to go into that, and I haven't made an in-depth study, but it is interesting and, and, and a lot of your marginal notes won't indicate this, but there are those who would suggest that these words, talking about bringing back from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, that these are actually a playoff of Isaiah chapter 63, verses 11 through 14. Listen to this. Then he remembered the ancient days, saying, Where is he who brought up from the sea the shepherd of the sheep? Now, it goes on, but basically it's talking about God who took Moses through the Red Sea, brought him up out of the sea, and, 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 and used him and worked in him as the shepherd of the flock. And, and remember, he's already made the point that, that the Lord Jesus is greater than Moses. And so what he's saying is, in a similar way, our Lord Jesus Christ has gone into the depths in, in death, symbolized in baptism, into the depths, and the Father has brought him back up out of those depths and made him the great shepherd of the sheep, and it is his resurrection and eternal existence which makes his sacrifice and his priestly ministry uh, so crucial and so valuable to us. I suggest that you may want to make that uh, an issue of, of more study. The resurrection underscores chapter 11. There we see all of these people died in faith, verses 13 through 16. They died in faith without receiving their reward because they believed that the city that God was going to give them was not an earthly city, but a heavenly city. So they were going to receive their reward after death. All of that rests upon this one resurrection, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So not only those saints... But we also, I think there's another element. He is talking to those who are going to go into more difficult situations because of their faith. He says, you have not yet 
lived out your faith to the point of shedding blood. The inference is you will. Some of these people will be martyrs, I believe. And so what he's saying to them is, what is the worst thing that the enemies of the gospel can do to you? Kill you. (laughs) You were going to die anyway. So it's just a matter that they've kind of punched your ticket early. But because Christ is the great shepherd of the sheep and he has been raised from the dead, God will raise us up also. So what are we to fear? Why would we fear men? And why would we fear death when our reward comes after death? One more thing, I think. I think that he's also assuring us of God's equipping of us to do what is uh, right. He says, may he equip you with every good thing to do his will. I was reminded of Romans chapter 8, verse 11. Where, he's, where Paul is talking about the, the weakness of the human flesh, the inability to live up to the standards God has set. And he says this, Moreover, if the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, the one who raised Christ from the dead will also make your mortal bodies alive through his spirit who lives in you. God used his Holy Spirit to raise the dead body of Christ from the dead. And he now, that spirit, lives within you. God will take those bodies, the body that Paul said, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Dead with respect to doing righteousness. And the answer is, God will through his spirit. It seems to me that that's the same argument that is given here in a slightly different way. And that is, God the Father used his resources to raise Christ from the dead. He is the one who will equip you. If he can do that, if that's the one and the greatest miracle of all time, then he can do anything to give you the power to live your life the way that pleases him. All right, I'll, do a, I'll say a couple of things uh, by way of conclusion. One, this text is an exhortation to leaders, is it not? An exhortation to leaders to be joyful, to be watchful, to be serious. All of those things we ought to be thinking about as leaders. It's an exhortation to followers, to follow their leaders. And here's the thing I I thought about in connection with that. When you have government in a church that is by a plurality of elders... Do not think that you can distinguish, in other words, I, 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 as one of the elders, I'm not just saying you need to follow me or us. Because this text says to me, I, as an elder, need to follow the elders. Isn't that what it says? Every one of us is to follow the leadership of the elders as a group. And, and so every elder has a responsibility not only to participate in rule, but also to be subject to rule. And that's the beauty of plurality rule. So I have a responsibility to be subject to my elders. And and I want to say this to you publicly. There is no group of men whom I would rather follow than the group of men here. No group of men. I willingly joyfully follow them. And I hope you will as well. 
Wow, there's a lot we could say, but I want to summarize this way. What are the truths that we should gain from the book of Hebrews? I don't know of any better way to end the book of Hebrews than to summarize the gospel as Hebrews presents it. So let me just do it that way. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 are talking about the supremacy of the Son, greater than the angels, uh, greater than any man. He starts out by saying, God has spoken finally and fully through his Son, who is the perfect representation. He is fully God. He is God manifest in the flesh. Chapter 2, if he has spoken to us in the Son, we had better listen to what Jesus has to say. Right? Jesus is the authority to speak to us about God and how to get to God's heaven and how to be pleasing to him. Chapter 2, in order for him to become our great high priest, He who was higher than the angels had to, for a moment in time, come down and be lower than the angels and take on human flesh. He had to experience our humanity. He had to experience our pain and our afflictions so that he could be a merciful and sympathetic high priest. So the incarnation of our Lord Jesus is an essential part of the gospel, and it's here in chapter 2. Then you see uh, in, in chapter 3 and chapter 4, man's desperate inability. You look at the history of the Old Testament people, and their bottom line is they are rebels. Now, they are rebels because their problem is they don't obey, they won't obey, and they can't obey. It's disobedience. So how does God take a disobedient people and bring them into a relationship with him where they may draw near in fellowship and have their sins forgiven. How is that done? And and he basically says, it is through the work of Jesus Christ as the great high priest. He is the one who has come in the flesh. He is the one who will be the great sacrifice. He, in taking on humanity... Not leaving his deity behind, but joining his his deity with humanity. When he suffers on the cross, he does so for our sins. He becomes the perfect sacrifice that no Old Testament sacrifice could match. He is the sacrifice that once offered is offered once for all. And now that he sits in heaven and he lives forever, he is the one priest that needs no replacement. He is there forever and he is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. So his blood saves us. He inaugurates the new covenant which sets aside the old covenant which doesn't require us to work our way to heaven, but works in our hearts. He writes his law in our hearts. He brings us to faith. He gives us faith to trust in him. And we are then called in chapter 9 to draw near. Chapter 11, well, chapter 10, I'm sorry, chapter 10, we're to draw near and we are to encourage one another. In chapter 11, there is only one way by which men may come to God, and that is by faith. And he says, based on the Old Testament, it was true there and it's true now. The only way that men find acceptance with God is to trust in him. And for us, that means trust in Jesus as the Messiah, the sin bearer to trust in his sacrifice in our place, to draw near to him as our great priest. 
So when you come to chapter 12, he's saying, Now in Christ by faith we should run the race with endurance. We should recognize that the sufferings and the afflictions of our life are God sent to draw us closer to Him and to make us dependent upon Him. And chapter 13 then concludes by telling us that we ought to live in brotherly love toward one another, walking out the faith. And in those final verses, we ought to trust in God alone. Verses 20 and 21. Should we expend effort to run the race? Well, absolutely. But when all is said and done, it is the race of which he is the author. It is the race of which he is the finisher. It is the ability that God provides that enables us to do these things. Now, I don't know where you're at in that sequence of things. It's possible that someone is here this morning and they're still back in the old covenant mode saying, if I just try harder, if I just work a little harder, if I, if I just do those, those ten commandments and try not to be so bad, then God will look at me and I'll be better than other people and I'm going to get there. It won't work, folks. It won't work. The only thing that will work is trusting in the sacrifice that pleased God the sacrifice of Jesus in your place. By trusting in him, you can have eternal life. He then becomes your great high priest. It may be that, that there are those here that are weary and need the encouragement to hang on, to run with endurance. Then we should do that. There may be some who are tempted to fall away, who are tempted to throw in the towel, give it all up so that the world won't, uh, won't hate us anymore. This book says there's only one way, and that is to hang with him, to go outside the camp, enduring his reproach and his shame, to be with him and to share the gospel with others. I pray that we'll do that. Father, we thank you for this book. Thank you for your words to us. Father, I pray that you would use those words to minister to each of our lives, wherever we may find ourselves experientially, that this book and these words through your Spirit's power would quicken us, would give us delight and joy in the Lord Jesus, would make him prominent in order that you might have the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.